Hey, welcome to Inside the Album. I'm Don Seckler. That's Tommy Hilkin. That's me, Tommy Hilkin. That's Don Seckler. <laughs> and today, <laughs> today we are here to talk about the album 10 by Pearl Jam. Now, I have to give a little disclaimer. I am an enormous Pearl Jam fan. I've seen them 20, 30 times. Woo. I love this band. All-time great album for me. Tommy, how, what's your take on Pearl Jam? Uh, I like Pearl Jam. I, I think my life ended in 1979 musically. So we, got, <laughs> we have a, a mutual love of music, but somewhere along the way, I got stuck a little bit. I know the radio hits. I know about Pearl Jam, but I'm here for you today. This is to celebrate my buddy Don Seckler's favorite. Thank you. Album. And I by the way, this that. is inside the album with Don and Tommy. All right. right. So we're going to dive inside. We'll give Tommy a little bit of education here, but you always have a great perspective. And that's why I love having you. Uh, you know, you and I working on this together has been phenomenal. I'm really having a great time and I love hearing your perspective on all this stuff. So yeah, it's great. Um, Thanks, Don. Yeah, so so happy, and uh, we're getting a lot of lot of interest. A lot of people are listening and downloading, and you can catch us on YouTube if you like video. On every other podcast audio platform, we're on Spotify, we're on Google, we're on Apple. So subscribe, like, give us a good review, do all those things for us to really help us out. We really appreciate it. We got a call the other day from a friend that I haven't heard in a long time, man. And he's a rock and roll guy. And he said, I love what you guys did with Abbey Road. I want to uh, share it with you here instead of calling and telling I loved what you did with Abbey Road. So yeah. something's working for us. It's all I, love of rock and roll. We loved it. I mean, that's a yeah. great album. We had a great, oh. I think that was one of our, our best episodes so far. It's, mm -hmm. it's a phenomenal all-time great album. Right. So um, tell us about our charity partner. We're working with Music for Mark. So tell us all about Music for Mark, Tom. Well, the reason we're doing Inside the Album is, you know, yes, we love what we're doing, but it also gives exposure to our foundation, which is called Music for Mark. What we want to do is we love music. Music has meant the world to us. So how can we continue bringing music to the world? We're doing it through Music for Mark, which is a way to bring musical lessons, musical instruments to kids of the world. Right through our foundation, we will supply them with everything they need, continue bringing this great art to the world. You know, listen, music goes away, we're done, basically plain and simple. So musicformark.com, check it out. That's our foundation. That's how we're going to bring music to the world. Yeah, so uh, so looking forward to being able to help out kids, get instruments in kids' hands, get them lessons, and, and give them a taste and let them try something, you know? You never know what you like until you try it, so it's so important, especially with kids, to get them and have them give a shot at something that they may end up loving and, and could make a career out of, so that's awesome. And you know, as simple as this, folks, listen, it could be a harmonica, it could be a tambourine, whatever it might be, we want to bring music to the world. Whatever it is, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So so let's talk, uh, we're gonna talk about Pearl Jam. This is Pearl Jam's first album. And mm -hmm. uh, let's let's walk through who's in the band. So everybody knows Eddie Vedder, the singer, you know, when you see the early days, you see him climbing on the scaffolding and diving into the crowd and doing all that crazy stuff that was happening, started happening in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. You also have Stone Gossard, who is the uh, one of the guitar players. Mike McCready usually is the lead guitar player. Uh, Jeff Ament, who is the bass player. Uh, and on this album, the drummer was Dave Cruzen. So mm. Pearl Jam has, uh, it's kind of like Spinal Tap. They've gone through uh, several drummers throughout their career. 
right now in Pearl Jam, they have Matt Cameron, who used to be in Soundgarden. Uh, he's been playing with Pearl Jam the longest, but at this time it was Dave Cruzen. And an unfortunate situation that happened with Dave, he had a real drinking problem. And the guys gave him a lot of chances back in the day, mm -hmm. and he just couldn't get his stuff together. So he ended up quitting the band at the end of the recording of the album and going into rehab to kind of get his life together. And so he was on the recording of the album, but then was immediately out of the band. Yeah. So we look back, this album was released in August of 1991, the end of August. So, uh, you know, recorded over the spring, summer, and then the album was released at the end of August. And at the time, this is when grunge was, you know, grunge, for lack of a better term, was, was really uh, starting to take hold. So you had bands like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Nirvana, you had other bands like Mud Honey and, and some of these less popular bands that were really driving this scene. And this scene was wholly formed around Seattle. So it was mm -hmm. really based in that Northwest. And, you know, they say grunge fashion, which was, you remember the guys with the Doc Martens and a lot of times shorts and flannel shirts. And Tom is representing with his flannel today. It's all I could bring to the game was the shirt. Right. And yeah. And so, so the bands, you know, they wore flannel because they lived in Seattle and it was cold and rainy a lot of the time. It wasn't really kind of a fashion statement. I think they were pushing back a little bit against the hair metal. This is kind of the death of the hair bands. Mm -hmm. So they had longer hair, but there was no hairspray. And they were going out and playing shows in t-shirts and ripped jeans. And the hair bands were in spandex with the hair teased out and makeup and, and that kind of stuff. And the interesting thing at that time was you started to see some of these hair bands try to kind of co-opt the grunge look at least. So you had a situation where you had, I, I think it was uh, Winger, and all of a sudden Winger is wearing, you know, flannel and not teasing their hair, and it it was just such a fake thing for them. <laughs> Winger, Winger just made the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen again. So enjoy that mention. <laughs> let me let me take you where we're going here. I just wanted to throw it out to you that you were saying it was more of a scene, right, than a genre. Right. You know, and with that, you know, I always was thinking this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit throughout the history of rock and roll. People had to put labels on things because it was different. You know, you got the right. 50s, your Fats Domino, your Chuck Berries, you go through your 60s and it goes into Elvis. Right. Then the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And you think about it, even the 70s became classic rock. Right. Right. Then the 80s brought us the new wave. Right. So from the 70s into the 80s, punk, new wave. And then the 90s rolled around and we needed something new and it came along and it was labeled as grunge. Right. right. And it's but, right. And it, people like to put stuff in boxes. Right. Yeah. So but what this, is it? It's rock, it's and, rock roll. and roll, baby. It's rock and, and roll. you know, yeah. you had so you had like bands like Alice in Chains and Nirvana. Nirvana, especially, I think, was was heavier on the punk side than on the, the, the rock side. Um, but then Soundgarden and Pearl Jam were were kind of heavy hard rock bands, you know, so more a little more classic rocky. 
Um, so it wasn't, you know, it was not a, I mean, everybody, all these, the good thing about this was all these bands knew each other. So they were all friends. They were all hung out together. They played shows together. Right. Um, you had the situation with Temple of the Dog, which we'll get into a second where, uh, Chris Cornell from Soundgarden had the guys from Pearl Jam playing in a band as a tribute to another guy who had just passed away. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, but it was a community. So that's the thing. Yeah. This this group of bands were a community. And to this day, the ones who are still around are still friendly and, and you know, play together. So it doesn't do matter where it was, right? You think right. about the 60s, you had the village and then San Francisco became a big spot to be in the 70s. So there's always a city that really adopts or things grow from. So there's sure. no, it's always been going on forever that there's a spot, Memphis, Nashville, right? right? We could name the city and everything grew from there. Well, so this is where it was all happening. Go yeah, ahead. and look at the the Tom Petty scene, uh, you know, in, in the 70s where you had all the, the Eagles and Tom Petty and all those bands, you know, Linda Ronstadt and Fleetwood Mac, and they're all kind of friends and they lived in that Jackson same area. Brown. And yeah. what was it, Laurel Canyon, I think it was, right? Yeah. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. So certainly, you know, it all it all grows from one spot. And really what it is, is everybody, you know, gravitates to it. This is the scene. This is the place to be. This is where I'm going to be seen. But, you know, I want to bring up something about Nirvana. You were saying much more punker. And for really, for Kurt Cobain really didn't enjoy Pearl Jam. So I want to throw that out there. You know, he really was a more of a punk guy. And yeah. he said Pearl Jam started to put in much more lead guitar and you know, right and, right you know, yeah there johnny was ramone, a, johnny ramone never played a lead in his life right right you know? and you know this so the funny thing about that is so there was some back and forth between kurt and pearl jam right but i think a lot of it was kind of overblown and more blown up in the press than than you know in the end i think right before kurt died he and eddie were kind of friendly and stuff like that friends, yeah. yeah yeah so it, it worked out in the end but um you know, that, and I think a lot of that too, it's kind of like the, the rap stuff in the 90s too, where it was East Coast, West Coast. So I think a lot of that was amplified by the magazines, by the rap magazines and things like what, that. What's rap? rap? <laughs> <laughs> I know who Coolio is. I know who <laughs> Gangsta's Paradise, baby. <laughs> so, <Come on. laughs> so let's, okay, so the band is just starting out. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about the, the, the origins of the band a little bit here. But I also wanted to talk about the success of this album. So uh, it was a hugely successful album, sold over 13 million copies, mm. made it all the way to number two on Billboard. And at the time it was pretty heavy. So this was again, a heavy, heavier band getting very popular, but they were kept out of the number one slot on Billboard by Billy Ray Cyrus. Billy and, Ray Cyrus. <laughs> and the achy breaky heart, you remember that? Uh, now, yes, I, I have to admit, I might not know Pearl Jam, but I know Iggy. <laughs> Thanks for pointing wow. that out. Wow. <laughs> How could you not, dude? Everybody had a mullet. Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, That's great. So the cover of the album is interesting. It it, uh, it shows the band kind of all, all doing this and we'll, you know, we're showing it here in the video but they're doing this kind of, you know, every, every man in hands in like a team, like a basketball yep. team almost yep. their hands raised all and it's one. yeah. Them, for, them against the world. Yep. So Jeff Ament, the bass player is super artistic, does a lot of the artwork for the band. And uh, his brother owns a, a, a his also an artist does a, has a poster company where they do rock posters, concert posters. 
So Jeff did this uh, huge wooden cutout of the band that he created, and they actually shot that. And then they, you know, went ahead and and so he did this huge wooden cutout of the band that they shot. Mm -hmm. And the, the original album cover was supposed to be a little bit more burgundy, but it turned out a little pinker than they liked. So the, the picture of the band in the front with the cutout was supposed to be black and white against that burgundy background. So the actual cover that you see on the album these days is not originally what they intended, but it kind of is what it is. And that's a life-size cutout. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So this guy, they do, yeah, crazy artistic <laughs> like talent. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, cool. Yeah, so the band came about uh, kind of out of the ruins of another band. So there was another band called Mother Love Bone, which, you know, I, it had some initial success, but the, the uh, lead singer, Andy Wood, died of a heroin overdose. I think it was either right before or right after the, their first album was released. So in that band was Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard, the bass player and guitarist for, who eventually became Pearl Jam. So of course, Andy Wood dies. They're all, you know, they're friends. Soundgarden is friends with them and everybody's, you know, lo losing their mind because their, their friend is dead. So Jeff and uh, Stone kind of drifted apart. Stone Gossard starts playing with Mike McCready, who was also in, in Seattle at the time in another band called Shadow. And so they started to practicing and, and writing a little bit of stuff. And then Mike McCready encouraged Stone to get Jeff Ament back involved. So Stone reaches out to Jeff. They come back together. They went ahead and recorded five demo songs with Matt Cameron, who at the time was the drummer for Soundgarden. And they put them on a cassette, basically, to distribute to their friends and try and find a singer because they they got into a groove where they were doing some stuff. Stone was getting a little heavier with his playing. Um, Mother Love Bone was kind of like, uh, I want to say they were almost like a funky glam band. So uh, wow. they started writing a little bit heavier, put all these songs on this cassette and started to try, try and find a singer for the band. I wonder if the name Mother Love Bone is taken because if not, I, I'm going to name my band that from here on out. <laughs> yeah, you might have some issues with that. They do have a, a record yeah. out. <laughs> it's a heck of a name, though. I yeah, right. <laughs> so, and they, you know, it was a pretty good band. They had uh, the song Star Dog Champion is probably the one that most people would know. And then there are, uh, there are some other songs that they had written that Mother Love Bone did that Pearl Jam plays sometimes now in concert. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so as they get this cassette out there, they're trying, you know, okay, how are we going to find a singer? So eventually the cassette gets to Jack Irons, who is the former uh, drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He is in San Diego and gives the tape to Eddie Vedder, who at the time is like a night watchman and he's a surfer and, you know, mm. he's in some bands and stuff, but nothing crazy is happening for him. Eddie takes the demo with the five songs and writes lyrics for three of the songs. So these lyrics uh, became the songs Footsteps, Once and Alive. Now, Footsteps is not on... 10, but it was released as a B-side on the album. But these songs were basically intact. So the demo went to Eddie, Eddie wrote the lyrics, and now they've got three solid songs. So these songs are kind of, they're known as the Mama Son trilogy because it tells a story. So it, uh, 
it starts with a live where uh, this the person in the song finds out that he his stepfather or uh, who he thinks is his real father is not his real father and his actual father is dead and then there's some incest with the mom which is a little weird uh so then he goes crazy and then once he now is losing his mind and killing people and, and he's violent and then footsteps is the last step of that where he's sitting on death row and kind of reflecting on you know what happened and and all these things so it's it's this crazy story with these songs that uh came together very very quickly and so they send the tape back to seattle the guys listen to it and they're like all right we got to get this guy up here now because this is amazing so they flew him up to seattle and they just started writing the rest of the album so I mean, it's it's like an epic story, you know, with with all these kind of connection points that if you miss one of them, this band never happens. Right. It Think about how crazy yeah. that is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When you got a band that's got, you know, and they're still going recording albums and touring on a regular basis. So this band's going on, you know, they're at 30 years now and and one misconnection there and nothing happens. And, you know, and from what I see, they survived a lot. You would know, you know, the truly you know heroin and booze and just just ripping people up in yeah. that whole you know group that whole gathering out in seattle became a really really tough time for people as human beings it did and they lost all this time and you know they right. were friends with all those guys so lane staley mike mccready when lane staley from allison chains was was really bad on on heroin and, and drugs Mike McCready put together a band called Mad Season to try because Mike had had troubles with alcohol and had cleaned mm. up. And so yeah. he went and got Lane involved in this band uh, called Mad Season, which is actually pretty good, and tried to get Lane around other people who were sober and, and get him back, you know, hopefully healthy. Wow. Yeah. Um, in the end, it didn't work. But, you know, again, a terrible <laughs> loss. You know, you lose these guys to drugs and alcohol. And, you know, we all know what that's like. Well, it's interesting with Mike McCready, uh, you know, the one thing I did know because I'm a big fan, he's a big fan of Ace Freely. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so there's a model, there's a role model. For well, him. yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know what's really cool? So I, I saw Pearl Jam in Madison Square Garden, I think it was 2003, and they had Ace Freely come out and play. And they did Black Diamond by Kiss, oh, which oh, is, you they, know, not the first Kiss song most people think about, but it's an amazing song. Amazing song. You know, we're going to cover this. But you just tell me when you want to hop in, because you said sure. this is your album. This is you. But when we were having a conversation, you said that, you know, live performances of this band was really what got you going, got your heart. Oh, yeah. Going, yeah. Right? Yeah. If you want to touch on that along the way, I'd like to hear a little bit about the live experiences. Yeah, well, the, the live experience to this day is insane. So to me, the, the Pearl Jam studio albums are the starting point. Gotcha. Uh, some of their songs, they'll morph over the years and they've gotten different. Like, and what you'll see one of the songs on this album is a, changed in a big way. It's much faster live and it goes crazy uh, with the solo and, the, and that part. And it, but, you know, it's a band where they get out on stage every night and they're doing three hour shows every night. So it's in, it's really like it moves you and everything comes to the next level. You get into, we had one show in Madison Square Garden. I think it was actually that same show with Kit, with uh, Ace Freely, 
where this actual stage was bouncing up and down because it was so much, you know, energy and, and the crowd was going crazy. Oh, yeah. And so Eddie asked the guys in the garden, he said, the only people that's ever happened for is the Grateful Dead and Bruce Springsteen. Wow. So you could feel the vibration in the whole garden. Yeah, it was, it's the insane. So I, I definitely, you know, if people have not seen Pearl Jam live, it's, it's extremely hard to get tickets because they do have, you know, a lot of really, really, uh, you know, rabid fans, they love to see the band live, but yeah. it's, it's really a great, gr just a great performance. And it's so much, you know, they take the le records to the next level, yeah. kind of like the dead, you know, the dead's different, obviously, because they're a jam band. Yeah. But yeah. For the dead, yeah. the recordings are a starting point and same thing for Pearl Jam. A lot of bands, when you hear their albums, nothing compares to the live, nothing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, some yeah. of my favorite bands are all about going and seeing them live. Sure, yeah, I'd always prefer live to recorded every day. Interesting fact about the band, originally they were called Mookie Blaylock after the uh, basketball player from the New Jersey Nets. I love and, that. Yeah, and so, you know, they said, well, we can't really use his name because we're gonna get sued or whatever. But they ended up using the number 10 as the album title in honor of Mookie Blaylock, basically. What's interesting to me about that is the fact of, of all people, Mookie Blaylock. Right, right I know, right? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Michael Jordan, Mookie I think, Blaylock. I think it might have been a story about like a basketball card that somebody had, or they had a pack uh, of basketball cards. And they go, oh, here's a good name, Mookie Blaylock, yeah. you know? Because I found that interesting. Though. Mookie Bla They were fans of Mookie Blaylock. I have no idea why. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I got it. So when they uh, when they started out, they you know Jeff uh, Ament. Uh, it was really at the beginning. It was it was Jeff and Stone's band because they kind of pulled everybody together and got everything rolling. They had written most of the songs. Eddie did the lyrics, obviously, but it was still kind of Jeff and Stone's band at the very beginning. And so Jeff said at the time that he knew they were a long way from being a real band because they hadn't played, like they, they wrote some songs and, you know, Jeff and Stone knew each other from the other bands, mm. but they hadn't really gone out and played shows as this band. So their idea was we wanted to get in, record this album and then use it as an excuse to get on the, on the road, you know, and, uh. and again, because they said, we know we can be great, but we need to get out there and play. And again, this is, this is a theme we see with, every band the more they play the better they get and these guys knew that um, you know and they had you know they had been touring and these guys have been in bands and played a little bit but this with this particular band they needed to do that so jeff said when he when the album was released he was hoping it would sell a hundred thousand copies and that he would say that was a total success so they passed that by uh you know a few million <laughs> don't don't ask me to do the math but go ahead yeah right <laughs> As we said, as I said before about the thing with Dave Cruzen, he quit and went into rehab uh, after the album was done. And he said, look, these guys, you know, they were super good. They gave me many, many chances, but he just couldn't get yeah. his stuff together, which is kind of sad. But I'm glad that, you know, he was able to get cleaned up. Also, Matt Chamberlain also toured with Pearl Jam over the summer of 91 after Dave Cruzen left. So he was the drummer, he was in the video for Alive. And then after he left Pearl Jam, he joined G.E. Smith and the Saturday Night Live band. Wow. And then they had Dave Abruzzi who then came to play uh, in the behind the drum kit for the next couple of years. And then uh, Matt Cameron after that. <laughs> I, I could throw it out to you, but a little bit. I, I, I've seen um, the guy from Saturday Night Live twice, you know, in concert. 
Amazing. Yeah. I'm sorry. You're talking about names going by. G.E. Smith. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just throw it out there. Phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal. Great band. And oh. you know, those guys, oh that God. that Saturday Night Live band has has amazing musicians in it all oh, the time. It's so good. Through the years, when you think about it, I always tell everybody, yeah, you listen to the Blues Brothers, you thought they were like a prank band. But the band behind them was like some of the greatest musicians in the world. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Maybe so someday let's... we'll cover that, Don. We'll cover the Blues Brothers. But go there ahead. you go. I would love to yeah. do a Blues Brothers episode. And I can talk a little more. <laughs> So let's take a listen to, there's this um, intro that is then at the beginning of the album that isn't listed. It's called Master Slave. It's kind of like a little blues jam and mm. it starts at the beginning. It's a little slow. Let's take a listen to that. And then it bookends. So the whole thing is at the end of the album uh, on the second half of the, the track release. So it's not listed on the album anyway, but let's take a listen. So it's very kind of quiet and builds up. You know, and it's just, just kind of almost kind of hippie-ish, right? Well, hippie-ish. You know, it's got a little bit going on. I, I don't want to say what I feel like it. I get a little Phil Collins. And, uh, right? Yeah, I hear that. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so you accept that. I didn't want to throw that out there and get you angry. No, I feel that. No, no. I, you know. Yeah. It's Peter a little Gabriel. It's the yeah. eight, I hate to say it's it's the progression through the eighties of the type of music in the background of it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, not not a. I, I guess it's a full track, and there's not really words to it. They don't. It, sometimes they'll play that in concert before once, just to kind of start off that song. You'll hear that as they come out or something like that. Right. Um, so it's interesting that uh, Stone Gossard does not appear on this track. So he was either sick or at the dentist or something. They said they had a couple of days in the studio. And so they just started working on this and they said, okay, we'll just use this kind of at the beginning and the end of the record. And this will bookend the album. Perfect. Yeah. So here's Once. This is the next song on the album. Actually the first song, but listed. <laughs> <laughs> Not one of the bookends. This song is just basically, and you know, and it's part of that trilogy that we talked about, that mama song. This, this is the part where he's just losing his shit. He's got a 16 gauge buried under his coat. Once yeah. I could control myself, it, it just total high energy. And, you know, if you look at the videos or the video of them in like videos of them in concert, back in the day, they were kind of like, this was like, they were like raging against the machine to kind of borrow another band's name, hey. right? Yeah. You know, it's the end of the eighties. They're coming back to, you know, straight ahead rock and roll, just like that, that young person. I don't give a shit. I'm angry and, and, you know, stuff is flying around and we're going to rock. 
I'm an old person. I feel that way. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and so this is again, the basis, when you see this live, the energy just like explodes yeah. in an yeah. arena and it's crazy. You know what you were saying about, you know, the straightforward rock and roll. So I'm listening, you know, and you know, the guitar work in there is, is far from punk. And the lead into that song, fuck, yeah, fuck. It, yeah, it's well, got much, a little jazzy, little twist to it. That's phenomenal. I, well, and great. Mike, yeah, Mike McCready's one of Mike McCready's huge influences. He loves Kiss, which is great, right. but one of his huge influences is Stevie Ray Vaughan. So you, uh, he, he leans uh, towards the blues side, but you know it works because they it got works. it. It's they're they're distorting it and it's getting heavier and you know they're it, it really moves with the song really well and builds up. And that's a lot, a lot of their songs are, are kind of, you know, these songs that build up to this crescendo, which is, you know, again, that I live, you. you know, where you feel it and you're waiting for it to come and then bam, right? Yeah, yeah, I got you. <laughs> you know, I like what you said though, realistically, when you think about everything, no matter what you look at it, rock and roll will always take us back to the blues. It will always, always. Yeah. There's no way around it. So no matter what we're talking about, somewhere, somehow, everything has been played before it's just where you're putting it you know so no matter what's going on in rock and roll it's still rock and roll right and it's how you know it's how you're always taking like you said you're always kind of taking something there's only a limited number of chords and notes and you're just rearranging them you know but if you do it with enough style and 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 you can really affect people's emotions and people get an emotional attachment to those songs it can make a big difference now i i feel what you're saying about the build-up live man like all of a sudden you know you're going and then you're going insane it's just taking you with it yeah yeah it takes you on a ride so oh yeah that's a good way of putting it yeah so the next song on the album is even flow This song, and you know, you can hear there's a lot of wah and effects, and that you know they were they were using a lot of these things, but that's a very kind of retro guitar sound, right? Oh no, that it's exactly what I'm thinking about. Even just the way it's being played. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's heavier maybe than like a, even like a Hendrix or or something like that because it's a little more, you know, you can feel that grr, which is so great. You know what I was just thinking? I'm gonna throw it out to you because I know how much you love this. So did Eddie fit the band, or did the band fit Eddie? Well, I think initially Eddie fit the band and then as they went on in their career, it became the band fitting Eddie. Um, okay. The thing is, you have a band here. So you have a band now with five songwriters. So wow. with Pearl Jam, the songs are written by 
Eddie, the, you know, in this first one that he was just mostly the lyrics, but Eddie's a, Eddie's a writer. Jeff Immense, a, a great songwriter. Stone Gossard is a great songwriter. Mike wow. McCready writes some of the songs. And even now, um, Matt Cameron is a, a songwriter. So even the drummer is writing songs in this band. And I think that that goes a long way to helping keep the band together, I think. Well, I think so because, because everybody's, everybody's contributing credit for being part of the album. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, you so you're not as well. when that when that one guy takes over. We just discussed this on Abbey Road how it was going. Right. right? So it's the same thing. You know, you're working as a group. That's why the the album cover was all for one. You know, and they really believed in that. So it's really cool to listen to that. I didn't realize that all five guys were songwriters. So. Yeah, That's so the I, I don't know if, if the early drummers wrote so much. Uh, I know that Matt Cameron does right now, though. But, you know, yeah. again, it's not the situation where it's Jagger Richards and you're just going to play what they write. Right. You now, Bill Wyman, yeah. did Bill Wyman ever write a song for the Stones? I don't so. Question better than that is, did Bill Wyman ever care? Yeah. Well, that's the other <laughs> side of it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bill Wyman was really along for the ride, man. Yeah. And Charlie Watts were made for each other. But exactly. That's another story. So I think this, you know, this environment where, and Eddie Vedder was a brand new guy. Like he just came right. to Seattle and was on this album. He was on the Temple of the Dog album, which they did for Andy Wood. So that was Chris Cornell with with uh, the guys from Pearl Jam with Mike and uh, and Jeff and um, and Stone and they brought Eddie in and let Eddie do the backup parts on on the Temple of Dog song Hunger Strike. So it was very the scene was very welcoming and I think that helped create this group of guys that had the ability then to continue on for 30 years and, and beyond, because a lot of bands can't take that, you know, because it's just two guys doing the writing or one guy doing the writing. It, it, it's a very good point you're making because you don't hear a lot of bands straight through the eighties that are even still close to being together, right? Come no. and go, come and go, right. come and right. everybody became disposable. And we both know, maybe we'll discuss it, but it was the MTV era, you know? So yeah. people, like, their only goal was to be seen. Right. And so this and this was the big video the big the first big video for for Pearl Jam was even flow. So it's I don't know if you've seen it, but they're in a club and they're going crazy. Eddie's climbing up the, you know, jumping into the crowd and all sorts of mayhem and just crowd mosh pit. And it was insane. But again, it's that energy that you you see it and you go, oh, man, I got to get in there. I got to feel that. It's a great song. Yeah, so this song is about a homeless man. So they say, you know, uh, thoughts of, arrive like butterflies. So he's, you know, losing it a little bit and he's homeless. But the thing about the song, Dave Cruzen, the drummer, who said, he, you know, at the time, it was a super hard song to record. So he, he was saying that they went through it like 50 to 70 times and they had trouble. He had trouble like getting between the sections of the song. And, you know, it's another thing where, again, he said that after all those recordings, they kind of hated each other. I'm sure they didn't hate each other, but they were just kind of like we've, what we've talked about before. Yeah. Too many takes, you know, I don't know if it always is the best thing. Well, you know what it is? I can talk from, you know, myself as a creative person. Right. Everything gets created twice. It gets created in your head. Then you got to do it physically. Right. Right. So it's already you got it done here. And as you're doing it, it doesn't sound right to what you're hearing. And you got five guys who are creative. Yeah. There's yeah. some conflict there. You know, you're not yeah. getting the same thing together. 
So the creativity is what makes it hard to get it out to yeah. make it sound just right. For sure. Yeah. The other the yeah. other interesting thing about Evenflow is that Stone Gossard actually wrote the lead riff. And then he gave it to Mike McCready and Mike McCready said it's him trying to play pretend to be Stevie Ray Vaughan. So there's that kind of uh, classic rock blues type of feel for it. Um, you know, and he Mike said it's a blatant ripoff, a tribute. Um, but he said he feels the same way about like Black and Alive and and for Alive, which is coming up a little bit, he said he copied Ace Frehley's solo from She, which was copied from Robbie Krieger's so solo in The Doors Five to One. So you get this whole chain of, you know, yeah. guys who like other bands and right. going ahead and using, uh, you know, taking from them a little bit and then making it their own. Dude, the you got to realize everybody's influenced by somebody or somehow it's, it's how it works. You know, you put a record on and all of a sudden you become a guitar player. There's going to be a riff you're going to be playing that you remembered as you were a kid. So yeah. it's not the worst thing in the world. And like you said, he's giving credit where credit's due. He's not stealing anything. Right. He's stealing a lick right. Here and right. There. Yeah. No. They're not ripping it off. It's just an right. influence. It's a lick. Yeah. So uh, this song, the guitar solo on e Even Flow, and amongst the J Pearl Jam fans, they play this song pretty much every show. So a lot of the diehard Pearl Jam fans say that this is their bathroom song. It's not for me. I want to be there and see that solo because <laughs> it's different every time. It was actually, the solo was actually named the number six greatest wah solo of all time by one of the guitar magazines, I think. Uh, it might have been Guitar World. So when the great, wah, who, knew, who knew there was a list in, of wah solos? <laughs> like in wah wah pedal wah? Yeah, yeah, wah wah pedal, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, right. so. Because there's I, a lot of wah out there. There, know, is, so. there is, there yeah. is. Depends on the band. On the wah level, you made it. Like Metallica, I don't know if you listen to a lot of Metallica, there's a lot of wah on Kirk's playing in Metallica. And this song, like I said before, it has been played a lot of times live. They've played it 837 times in concert. So uh, if you go on Pearl Jam's website, they have a list of every song they've ever played live. They have That's cool. pretty much most of their so shows are available as bootlegs. You can buy them. That's but great. they have a whole database of when the song was played, which shows where and all this stuff. It's crazy. But almost a thousand times they played this song live in concert. That's crazy. Well, a lot of people got to go to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> true story, right? Yeah, true story. There you go. So, so you know exactly when you look at the data, when you left the arena. Go ahead. Exactly. I digress. <laughs> Matt Cameron, the drummer, uh, you know, he and he, again, he wasn't in uh, Pearl Jam at the time, but he the, he was in Soundgarden. They were working on the album Bad Motor Finger. Eddie Vedder brought up the mixes of the 10 album to the studio and they were listening to it. And he, Matt heard the solo and the core or heard the chorus from Evenflow. And he goes, oh my God, that's huge. It's so hooky. It had the really kind of Led Zeppelin, huge rock, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of big arena rock feel to it. He still, Matt Cameron still loves it and thinks that it's the, the quintessential Pearl Jam song. Let's take a listen to the next song on the album, which is Alive. Mm -hmm. 
So again, this is a song where, you know, it's, it, he's telling this kind of crazy story about the, the kid, he's growing up, the father is dead, he doesn't know it, the, the stepfather is his father, the mother tells him there's incest between the mother and son, which is really weird. Uh, and then he finds out that the real father is dead and he can't get back in touch with him. And it, it's, so it's all these things kind of going through it. And then you have the, the chorus, which sounds like this. So you've got that whole that whole chorus of I'm still alive, which to Eddie, the story, the song, it, it's like a burden. It's not a joyous thing. It's like, why am I still alive? My life mm -hmm. is so fucked up. Um, you know, my mom's that sleeping with me. I don't know who my father is. Then I find out he's dead. So is this whole burdensome thing? Yeah, but you're not celebrating being alive. You're wondering no, why. But yeah. you know what happens? So Eddie, you know, over the years, they're doing this song all the time. It's a super popular song. Probably this, you know, one of the songs they're most well known for. And so what happened was, you know, they, they went right into playing arenas and festivals and big shows. There was not no club scene for them at all. Uh, so they saw the reaction of the crowd and the crowd turned it into this uplifting anthem where, you know, even though it wasn't the meaning of the song, the crowd is celebrating, you know, we're all still alive. It's such a powerful, upbeat type of song now. So it really, it changed Eddie's perspective on it, he said, and said, you know what? That, it's not what I originally intended, but I love it. And this is what it means to people. So they really play into it. So when, again, when you see this live, it's, it's just insane because, you know, they turn a lot of times the lights are on and the whole crowd is singing along. And uh, it's, it's very impactful uh, as a, as a great song. Yeah. I just wanted to tell you uh, as much as we're kidding and beginning about this, I've listened to this album over and over and over without even knowing it. Just while I'm listening, I'm like, Oh my God, these are the songs that come on that I never shut off to tell you the truth. Yeah. So it's yeah. like it's not like that I was a Pearl Jam fan, but this music is incredible. So well, I'm, I'm hearing it. I'm going, oh my God, this is a great song. So I've I've listened to this over and over and over again. Tremendous. And you know, I think too, with with music especially, like people get into zones of their life where you sometimes you're just doing other stuff and you're not paying as much attention to to music. Like you're raising your kids and doing your business or whatever. Freedom. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, when this came out, I had two little babies running around the house. So I didn't go to any shows. I didn't get to see Pearl Jam or early or Nirvana or those bands because I was here, you know, raising my kids. That's the part of our life. That's yeah. where I was at this point in my life. The 90s. Exactly. I had my kids. Yeah, totally get that. That's pretty cool. That's so the other way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. So the other interesting thing about this song is they were offered six million dollars to put this in a commercial and they turned it down yeah. because the commercial was for Viagra. So oh, they showed us, they said, they, <laughs> the band said that they, the, the advertising or whoever it was, people showed them these storyboards where they had this little animated penis that was singing, I'm still alive. Wow. You know what? They should have went with uh, Elton John's I'm still standing. Yeah, you know, right. <laughs> 
Could you imagine though? It's like, you know, the song is one of the core songs of their catalog. Of course, thank God. And they're going to, you know, it's a lot of money, but you know, are they going to sell it to, uh, you know, boner pills? <laughs> that's the best. That's the best. Uh, hey, you know, can we use that? I, I, I just love everything. I like to see the guy who came up with the concept and said, let me call them. Let me see. What yeah. yeah. Let me, let me get in front of these guys and take their, Come on, it's Pearl Jam. they'll take my call. One, uh, one of their most popular songs and have our wow. little cartoon hey, dick, uh, you know let's see when they're in their 70s and they start everybody's selling their catalog now i just noticed that the other day yeah right bob dylan yeah. just sold dylan. everything yeah, nice price tag too 300 million yeah Woo. all right I said so to my wife i would have sold that 50 years ago <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, somebody. I read somewhere that he was. Somebody said they thought he was going to distribute the money to whatever. I don't know what that he's would be nice. It, but you know, he's a good man. He's an older guy at this point. Yeah, so let's almost let, eighty. Yeah, yeah. So let's take a listen to the next song on the album. This one is "Why Go." A lot of bass here, right? Here's Jeff Ament with that bass. Boom. A wah. There's your wah, right? Wow. So this song is about a girl who's locked up against her well in a mental institution. And it's actually about a specific girl in Chicago that Eddie had read a story about. He has said like, you know, it's like you have reasons to be angry when your parents who are making these decisions for you and, you know, not letting you experience your life. And evidently this girl was smoking weed or something. And, you know, I, I don't know if there's more to the story, but then she ended up getting locked up and he goes, and he said that then there are these institutions on the other side who are taking money and diagnosing people just to keep them sick and keep them in there and keep uh. making the money and all. So it was kind of this, again, and kind of against the system type of song, you know, which at the time was very kind of, you know, in that energy of getting out there and raging against the machine for lack of a better term, right? You know, you, well, the machine, the machine goes in all the, the, you know, I think of our rehabs and detoxes. Yeah. The machine, it's a machine, a money-making machine, by the way. But listen, on this, I'm hearing, you know, somebody has a psychedelic influence, you know what I mean? Yeah, Where, that's Mike playing that yeah. the, with a wah lead, yeah. Yeah, so somebody grew up hearing that in the background of right. their life. Maybe their dad, their mom, whatever it was, but 
there was an era where they were hearing psychedelic music. Yeah. It doesn't it, just happen like that. Right. It's definitely, definitely that classic rock sound again. And you awesome. hear kind of that, that riff that Stone's playing that thing, just the, you know, it's a little funky, right? A little laid back, but it works yeah. in that whole heavy environment because it keeps the song moving forward, you know? You know, and I'm so glad we're doing this because I'm smiling here. And I, you know, we, I thought I'd struggle with this, but I know how much you love this and I'm watching you. But, you know, the way Eddie Vedder sings and the music is kind of like, it's two different worlds. It, it, it's kind of like they, like we said earlier, I, I can't believe how that voice and the way he rhythm rhythmically plays and sings yeah. fits the music. Right. Right. It's kind of an odd. He does a great it. job with that. Yeah. And the, you know, there, there, there are some singers who have do a great, uh, super good job with that kind of rhythmic lyrics. So the right. rhythmic singing. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah. the, 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 the instance that I, refer to a lot of times with that is in rap where where it's eminem where it's a lyrical rhythm so right. he's like bump -da -dum. it's super fast with him but you feel it and you can it, it changes the song in a lot of ways and there are a couple oh. other singers i like who do that as well yeah i'm just finding it amazing that it's a perfect mix i mean that and I like oh yeah the music you know i always listen for the music you know that i, I love guitar i love hearing guitar yeah, you know, the drummer everything that comes in together the bass line so i listen for that and then I realized how it just comes together. It's it's amazing. It's great. It's amazing. Stuff. Great song. Yeah. So let's talk about Black. This is the ballad on this song. And again, a hugely popular song live. No wah here. <laughs> but you are going to get this bass. So super, super pretty song, right? Just, you know, very kind of romantic. It's a, it's a song it. about, about loss and unrequited love. And, and then you get to this part where the buildup really starts. Everything. 
So again, live, that moment is insane. Yeah. You know, the so it's phenomenal in the background. Yeah, um, and uh, this song is another one of these build-up songs and it's so emotional and it's it's about love and and that unrequited love and and you know, trying to let go, but you know, it's it's just a beautiful beautiful song. I know exactly what this song is. This is the song you play for your girlfriend if you want to get her into Pearl Jam. That's what that's <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely one that the ladies like for sure. That's, yeah, it, that's the first one you play for your girlfriend if you want her to listen to Pearl right, Jam. Right, right, because it's all about love, you know, and, uh, and, and that. Isn't it always done? Yeah. So they didn't, they, you know, they did uh, videos on the, on the first couple songs off the record. I think uh, this one was the third single or fourth, I'm not sure. Um, but they decided that they didn't want to do a video. They were not super happy with the videos they had done previously. And they said, look, I don't want in 10 years somebody to remember the video. I want them to remember the song. That's so funny. You know, so think about that. And that's part of, you know, what I think MTV, it became so much about the videos that even those songs to this day, you remember the video when you hear the song, like Hot for Teacher by Van Halen or, or some of the ones that were super, super popular on MTV, right? You know, and that's a great song, Hot for Teacher. So, you know, my wife and I, before I came down today to the studio, I, uh, <laughs> I was talking to my wife about the 80s and going into the 90s with music. We've lived together musically 40 years. And she said, yeah, whatever happened to the 80s? I said, well, that's a whole nother story. We can't really tell that one. But I did say to her, it was the MTV years. And I wasn't a big MTV guy. I, yeah. I just didn't. I enjoy music as is. Right. And MTV took over the world. So it was kind of like everybody had to mix their music to the video to get noticed. Right. And to me, that was like, ah, you know, let's stop this. Well, and these guys were at the end, or not the end, but the, right in the prime of like MTV, I guess, peaked in like the late 80s and then yep. through the 90s oh, yeah. started declining. Oh, so yeah. they were right in the middle of it. And you kind of, that was what you had to do. That's what everybody did. So they did these yeah. videos, but then they fought back on it and said, you know what? We don't want this to be the memory right. people have about it. And I don't. <laughs> and I know what songs coming, but go ahead. So the next song on the album is Jeremy. Mm. Again, the bass. Now, this is Jeff Ament wrote this. Harmonics on that bass. So again, I mean, this is again another, and we we talk about these albums, and this is another album where the the best songs of the catalog, a lot of the best songs of the catalog, they've done great songs since us. Yeah. But uh, you've got five songs on here that are you know among their best songs, and this is one wow. of them, and that I think everybody knows because this is probably the one that got the most uh, you know airplay and MTV play back in the day. So you were mentioning it. How does this go over live? I know everybody Everybody has a song in their catalog that they have to play. Yeah. So Layla for them. You know what? It, interestingly enough, Jeremy is not a song that they play very frequently live. I could, I could see it. So yeah. you're always going to get 
uh, you're almost always going to get even flow. A lot of times you're mm -hmm. going to get a live. Those two are played very frequently. Right. Once may here and there, why go here and there, black a lot. And then Jeremy is kind of one of those, they play it every so often. So when you, when you go Pearl Jam also, when they play live, they play a different set list every night. And okay. Eddie looks at the set lists to make sure they don't repeat them. So it's crazy because I've seen them on one tour five times, all different mm -hmm. songs. You get some That's repeats. Oh my God. But yeah, so you, you, you can't go to Pearl Jam expecting to hear greatest hits. You will hear some of their hits, but you like may it. hear a lot of songs that you've never heard of if you're, if you're a casual fan. And you know, when you're on tour, man, the last thing you wanna do is be up on stage going through the motions. Yeah, exactly. And I think yeah. that's a lot of the reason why they switched up. But, the, you know, yeah. plus the fans like it. It draws people to the shows. Um, well, you can go three nights in a row. Oh, yeah, easily. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's fantastic. So this song, Jeremy, is actually a story about uh, actual events that happened. It was uh, a kid in, in Texas that mm. shot himself in front of his classmates because they were tormenting him. And then in addition to that, there's also uh, Eddie, had, back when he was a kid, had a, a run-in with a classmate uh, in junior high. And this kid, it was a kid who Eddie and him didn't get along and they had some fights and stuff. And this kid actually brought a gun in to school oh. and shot up the fish tank in one of the classes. <laughs> so it's kind of a combination of those two stories. And the video shows the kid not directly shooting himself, but you see the kid, you know, oh. I think he, I don't know, he didn't show the gun, but then they show the class and the class is splattered in blood and, and everything. So it's, it's kind of, you know, it's a dark song. And the interesting thing here, it was written by Jeff Ament. And he, so he had these two pieces of music that he wrote on acoustic guitar. Now he's a bass player. So he's writing on acoustic guitar. And then he got this uh, Hamer 12 string bass which is uh, unusual. And so awesome. when he got when he got that in, he started playing one of these pieces on it and that became the Jeremy riff. I like it. Yeah, so you don't see it often a 12 string bass. That's an unusual guitar. Um, the other thing they did was they added a cello to it. So if you really listen, you can hear the cello in there too. But again, it's kind of that uh, that layering that we often talk about where they're, they're stacking up either voices or instruments upon each other. And it really kind of widens or thickens out the sound a little bit. So let's talk about oceans. Let's The currents will shift Like me towards you No, something's left And we're all allowed To dream of the next oh. Oh, next time we So th this song, I think, is a, a great example of uh, the power of Eddie Vedder's voice on this album. Like, it just he's he's got a that low baritone voice, but mm. he go he can get up there sometimes, you know, and and maybe not all the way as other, you know, really great singers. But it, you just feel the emotion in this. This is Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard's favorite song on this album. 
and Eddie wrote the lyrics and he uh, he he's an avid surfer. So a lot of people thought this song was actually about the ocean, but it's not. It was about his first wife, Beth. Wow. So that's a little interesting nugget for you. Um, also, they're using the guitars. They're doing some interesting things with the guitars on this. So they have an open and detuned guitars. And we've talked about that, that that kind of changes up the sound a little bit. And mm -hmm. so Stone Gossard was saying that it's just a super simple thing where because of the open tuning that they're using, it's just a simple one or two fingers that go up and down the fretboard. You know, there's these little changes in it, but uh, it has basically these three big movements where there's a lot of buildup. And um, so all of this stuff together, even though it's a very simple arrangement, it really becomes super powerful. It's beautiful. Yeah, love it. Another interesting story about this song, Eddie Vedder, he wrote the lyric to this song one day when he got locked out of the studio. And so it was a typical, you know, rainy day in Seattle and the band is working on the track. All he couldn't get back in. He went out to feed the parking meter and he got locked out. Fortunately, he had a pen and paper in his pocket. And he was saying that all he could hear was the bass coming through the wall. So he figured while he's locked out, he would sit down and write the lyrics to the song as he heard this muffled, you know, kind of sound from inside. That's crazy. It's always the best when you find out literally where it all happened. You know, yeah. I remember, you know, and, the, the story goes of, uh, you know, George Harrison writing the song Bangladesh on a napkin, you know, that kind of a thing where it's just sitting down. When it, I needed to write it down, it came to me. And that, that's a beautiful part of music, man. Yeah, that's it's like those, those happy accidents, right? You know, those things yeah. when it just pours out of you and you're, you know, you're at the point of your, the peak of your creativity, that that's stuff it. just happens. Pure creativity, exactly. So the guy who mixed the album in England used sound effects that he created from a pepper shaker and drumsticks, and he was tapping on a fire extinguisher. So it's about 30 seconds into the song and you can hear the pepper shaker on the left and the fire extinguisher drumming on the right. And uh, it was very subtle, but it's that kind of stuff underneath that when you really dig in and listen to it, you, you're like, oh, wow, listen to that, you know? But if you don't know it's there, you may not even hear it. Now you listen to the old Motown and the Supremes and Smokey Robinson, somebody was playing a chain just the yeah. actual metal chain. In right. The right. Well, yeah. and we had talked in uh, Toys in the Attic about Steven Tyler playing a sugar packet just sugar right up packet. in front of them, in front of the microphone, a sugar packet, right? Yeah. This guy's something more creative with a sugar packet. Say something we could never dream of. Yeah, right. Somehow hey, that didn't work out. Deal, but it's not playing a sugar packet. I get yeah. it. The sugar packet never worked out for me. Nah, I wish it would have. <laughs> I would have played the sweet and low. I would have really kicked it. <laughs> All right, so let's take a listen to Porch. What the fuck is this world? Running to you, didn't leave a message, at least I could have learned your voice one last time. Daily minds feel this could be my time by you. Would you hit me? Would you hit me? So this song live, they really, uh, they, they ramp it up 
the speed comes up a bit. And this is one that they're quite, uh, often closing sets with. So they'll come out, they'll do a main set, and then usually two encores. So generally 32, 33 songs in one show. Amazing, oh, wow. just long shows. But this will okay. go on. And you know, the one on the album is good, but the live versions are insane. You know, yeah. they just get into it. There's crazy stuff. In the old days, you see Eddie Vedder climbing on, you know, on the scaffolding, like at uh, Pink Pop. I think it was in 1992, or or jumping off of stuff. And the band is just going on. And that jam section in the middle of it just is always insanely good. And every show, it's different. So you know, they're not playing. These things are all they when they play these songs live all those solos are all pretty much improvised. You know, there's some themes that repeat in them, but they definitely right. change it up. Yeah, you just go off on something the best. I, I can see it in you, you know, as we're listening. You know, the li- when, when you talk about the live, you light up, man. So yeah, yeah, so get good. To see another show soon. Yeah, right. <laughs> that would be great. I'm looking yeah, forward to it. That would be great. Let's see if we can get uh, 75,000 people in an arena. Uh, <laughs> in a stadium. Probably yeah, not yeah. I think it may be a while, but. Yeah. So this song, this song was also, uh, the lyrics were written by Eddie on his way up to Seattle. So he gets the tape in San Diego, writes lyrics for those songs. They send it to him. Then they say, okay, come on up. We're going to bring you up here and audition you. On the way to Seattle, he writes the lyrics for Porch. So they get up there. They had this song pretty much written without lyrics, and it fit. So, you know, again, another happy accident. And it's definitely one of the most popular Pearl Jam songs amongst the fans. So let's talk about Garden. Yes. It's a little laid back here. So this part where it builds up is really crazy good. The song is about uh, a, a military cemetery, basically. The Garden of Stone is the cemetery. Um, the, the album was recorded shortly after the first Gulf War. These guys, you know, they, they do some political stuff. They're liberal, like, like a lot of rock and rollers. And uh, so this, you know, came about when they were hanging out. Eddie was hanging out with Chris Cornell from Soundgarden and Stone Gossard in a pool hall. 
and uh, George Bush, the first one, came on television to talk about the United States invasion of Kuwait. And they were like, why are we doing this? Where are we going? Is, you know, is, is this going to turn into another Vietnam? Is this just greed about the oil? And so, you know, again, they, you know, I hate to keep referring to uh, rage against the machine, but a lot of what they were doing is that kind of against the system type stuff. No, I like that what you say, you know, we bring up rage against the machine, but I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, it's against the system. You're, they're young and, and, you know. You know, I, I have to tell you, I, I when I talk about it a lot, you know, liberal, whatever it might be, but there's a machine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm there's a machine, or as George Collin would say, it's a big club and you ain't in it. Right, uh, right, exactly. Yeah, so I get it. I, I wanted to, we just talked iPhone droid, so we know what I'm about. <laughs> <laughs> So again, this is I'm one of those raging against the machine, my friend. <laughs> yeah. So again, this is one of those songs. It's not frequently played, but again, live, so so powerful. So this one is deep. This song is about drug addiction and he's in too deep, but he can't touch the bottom. So this is somebody who's in that cycle where they're not bottoming out and, you know, it, it continues until that happens. Right. So. Why don't you say that? I know I, uh, this point in my life, I was reaching up to touch the bottom. <laughs> yeah. So they, you know, in this scene, there was a lot of drugs. A lot of these guys were, you know, not, Pearl Jam, but a lot of their mm. friends were, were in, in the heroin and that kind of stuff. And so they saw this stuff happening around them and, it, you know, it was part of what they were writing about. Yeah, you know what? It really was the scene because, you know, we, we talked about it earlier. A lot of people dying. Yeah. Dying. So let's talk about the last song on the album. This is Release. Let's. So again, a lot of build up. That kind of this kind of droning riff here.
so you know this song is this kind of droning and then builds up to this big release you know which again live is amazing and they actually have opened with this so they might come out to something slow sometimes you have this nice slow and then build up and then explode sometimes sure. they'll come up and right out of the gate go heavy um but this song so the story about eddie the the story about the father the stepfather is actually eddie vetter's story the mm. you know the incest part is made up that's not accurate <laughs> not his real life so Thanks. this song for him was a real emotional song and the way it started was the band was playing this riff and Eddie got up there and the lyrics just started coming out of him. So again, this yep. stuff is just flowing out. Mm -hmm. The other side of it, it was super emotional for the band because they had just lost Andrew Wood from Mother Love Bone recently, you know, in the past year or two. And so they were still dealing with that. He's dealing with his history with, you know, not knowing who his uh, dad was. And it comes together into this beautiful song that that uh, you know is super super emotional. You know, it's great. I was just thinking, you know, I'd love to know where their influences were and who their influencers were. Like, go through it. I hear a lot in this song, the guitar work. You know, it, it's almost like took me back to some of uh, like George Harrison with the sitar. You know, the sure. You know, a little bit of an influence of. Yeah, it's interesting to hear it. That little pecking of it was like had a little Indian influence to it, you know. A little just, bit, right? It's just know, that, yeah, that just, riff, yeah. That riff, yeah. yeah just yeah. you could hear it, you know. I, I was thinking of within and without you, you know, when I was hearing this. That's where usually I connected. So well, somewhere, somewhere, I'd love to have a conversation with him. See if you can make that happen. Yeah, let me hook that up. Set that up for you. <laughs> So I know that they're influenced by all the classic rock stuff. So Beatles, yeah. Zeppelin, they yep. do a lot of Beatles covers. They've done, um, I've got a feeling. I so this, feel so I, they play, I've got a feeling by the Beatles live a lot. So they have the influences of Beatles, the Zeppelin, Steve Ray Vaughan, Kiss. They also have some punk influences. Eddie Vedder likes the Who a lot. They mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, some of the, the early punk bands and things like that. So it's a whole mix of these of these 70s classic yeah. rock bands that they they really, you know, grew up like, you know, what they grew up with. Right. Good. I'd give anything to hear. I got a feeling by Pearl Jam. Yeah. You gotta be recording somewhere, right? I'm gonna I, see I probably do. have one that I can send you. I've great. got like a million of their bootleg albums. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> that'd be, that would be great to hear. All right. So that's Pearl Jam 10. Pearl Jam 10. There you go. You know so, what? And I was going to want to throw this in because yeah. it's my little uh, nugget. And Don, thanks. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I really did. You know, the music, everything, hearing it from me. Like I said, I might not have known or owned this album, but I've listened to it many, many, many times. And yeah. it was amazing. But, you know, I, I realized I wanted to throw something in. This is inside the album, ladies and gentlemen. And this really was a CD. I, I discovered that. It started out as a CD, but in case you're wondering, Three day, three years later, it was released as an album. Oh, there you go. Yeah, well, uh, it was all CD back then, right? There was CD, not. There right? was. was there was like the we vinyl was kind of like, dead. I was wondering when we were doing this. I'm like, you know, inside the album, right? That's what we're doing here. And I, I did it. and I checked it out, and it was yeah. This was released as a CD. Three years later, it became an album. Cool. So there you go. Good inside the album. <laughs> All right. Thanks for watching. And next week, we're going to be doing a little Eric Clapton. We're going to hit slow hand. Ah, now we're talking. So we we'll go right. back to we'll go back to Tommy's day next week. <laughs> go back to Tommy's era. All right. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen.
Yeah, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, we've got some merch on the website, insidethealbum.com. So yep. you could check that out, some t-shirts and, and mugs and, and stuff like that. So hope you enjoy the episode and we'll see you next week. <laughs>